0: Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. We are really excited for this episode. I have the opportunity to interview a city councillor here in Edmonton, and I'm joined with Nicholas today to chat more about those things. And we also have some really exciting news as well. So Edmonton's mayor has a special ability. Only the mayor can unilaterally proclaim a day. So When I was in university, he proclaimed, like, saxophone day to be some random day. So he should use this power to proclaim whenever the gondola got killed as fuck the gondola day. in And I think that's a great idea.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't know if we actually talked about earlier uh, this year when... um, So he proclaimed, like, National Cat Day or something like that Um, yeah that's true anyways i remember we were saying something about how uh like it took them a hundred years to proclaim (laughs) black history month um and then like the
0: next year they proclaim national cat day damn what's the saying you know what's next you know guy's going to marry, you know, his cat or dog or whatever, you know. If we expand people's rights, we're going to end up in tyranny. Pretty funny, though, that, yeah, those things came right next to each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like proclaiming a day related to the gondola is... If you can give politicians uh, a way like like an an easy thing like proclaiming a day uh that'll make you happy with them they'll they'll take it so anyways i'm sure (laughs) i'm sure if we gave a list of our i'm sure if we gave like a list of our demands to the mayor and he had to like pick pick one of them that would be the one that he would do
0: prioritized you would you would filibuster that that through very very quickly yeah uh, um, yeah okay
1: um uh, well yeah, anyways, I think we're all glad to not be living in a city where there will be um an expensive gondola going from White Ave to downtown um built on a uh gravesite um and Uh,
0: with like private profits so and like somehow justified as some mode of public transportation like i think i heard a lot of arguments around that or accessibility when those issues should be addressed for what they are not through a vehicle of a gondola but
1: yeah that's a funny one because i also hear the same uh argument is always used to justify the um, funicular project as well, mm-hmm. where whenever you're kind of like, oh, why were millions of dollars spent on this kind of like vanity project amid the city saying they don't have money for uh, really important things that are, would um, affect people in the city, like housing um, or any kind of like health supports that they supposedly say they just need money from the province for Um, anytime there's that kind of like criticism on like vanity projects uh, it's so it's it's always diverted to some kind of surface level way that this maybe marginally makes things better for some kind of underrepresented group and yeah in the case of the funicular or the gondola it's like making the river valley more accessible or providing like accessible transportation I don't know it, it contributes to this idea of representation not meaning anything or representation being a kind of like elite discussion point um, or like the idea of like diversity being like you know bullshit that's what kind of fuels that idea is when you use it to argue for or support um, like a vanity project or something that's just uh, very, very clearly meant to appeal to like
0: um, elite people. No, for sure, and I feel like it, it fits within the perfect topic of optics and and how optics can can really be weaponized to advance um, interests, to move money around, to I guess pass. Um, motions that are, are largely unpopular or are even spoken about in, in reality that they don't make sense but are still you know pushed through. So it's a good segue to, to talk about the, the Chinatown Center and the Healthy Streets Initiative that's going to be renamed eventually. 50, $15 million going straight to the police after their complicit action in seeing two people murdered in Chinatown, along with the RCMP who dropped off um, the person who ended up doing this. So the money breaks down that it was approved on um, on the past Monday, which is $10.3 million for police constables and equipment, $4.9 million for peace officers, community safety liaisons and firefighters for two years, 2023 and 2024, And, you know, like you mentioned before, Nicholas, these asks are never viewed through the lens of other things that can, you know, very easily be downplayed. But the police asking for resources is really um, positioned in a way that it's impossible for the city to say no to, even under the circumstances Um, where they've asked the province, the city of Edmonton has asked the province to give them $18 million to essentially cover the program for another two years. And the province hasn't even answered. The province hasn't said anything, yet the city is completely fine with advancing their own funding. But yeah, like we said before, it's very interesting to see when the city can justify moving forward without provincial funding and when they can't justify moving forward without provincial funding. And what we really see when we look at the cases is that justifications can be made for police at any moment, at any time, for almost any amount of money. But when it comes to housing, when it comes to mental health supports, when it comes to addiction supports... Well, you got to shrug your shoulders because the province isn't pulling their weight, and the city can't make any exceptions unless it comes, you know, for police. Like I said before,
1: uh, yeah. And the uh, the interesting thing, yeah, as you said, council approved fifteen point two million dollar two year budget for this um, center in Chinatown, which is essentially a new police hub in Chinatown, just a few blocks from where they already have a police station. Um, originally. This was budgeted at $18 million, but over four years. So initially, it was supposed to actually be a smaller budget than they now just approved. And when they initially set the budget at $18 million, that's when they asked the province for $18 million towards the center. Now, the province actually hasn't gotten back to them in like the two months since they sent that request. But apparently, in that time, they've also increased the budget for the Chinatown Center to now be fifteen million dollars over the next two years, which you know if you extrapolate that conservatively, that's thirty million dollars over four years, much higher than the eighteen million that they budgeted for and Obviously, as we see with the police budget, nothing stays uh linearly the same cost each year, so if it's fifteen million for the first two years, it's probably going to be higher for the two years after that so now we're looking at a 30 plus million dollar budget that basically we're committing to at least for 2023 and 2024 we haven't heard back from the province about the money that was requested but even if the province gives that money the city is still committed for more than that so we're now essentially in a situation where council confirmed the budget for this center and we might get a little bit of it funded by the province, but we're for sure going to pay as a city for some of it and, uh, potentially, uh, probably we'll end up paying for all of it. And now remember, this is already after, um, we, uh, Increased the police budget um, back in June by 20-some million dollars. And that is that is already after uh, the police budget was um, increased in December um, by uh, another million dollars. Um, So yeah, police is getting um, a lot of handouts here. And uh, we spent a little bit of time... um, Watching the the council meeting, and just going back and looking at some of the things that councilors had said, I think what's really interesting is that um, a lot of them uh, made some some pretty good points that you know we've we've talked about here on on the podcast. You know, um, the Chinatown community or the Chinese community is not a monolith, so it's wrong to equate. A center like this uh, or more police presence in Chinatown as supporting the community Um, You know, the tragedy has been used for personal gain by politicians and by police Um, You know, these are all great points, um, but uh, All the counselors saying these points and some of them quite emotionally uh, and apparently with a lot of conviction just ended up voting in favor of giving this uh, $15 million towards the center um, and you know just to name names here we're talking about um, Andrew Knack, we're talking about Aaron Paquette, talking about Sarah Hamilton, talking about Karen Tang and of course we're talking about uh, Mayor Amarji Sohi here. All of these councillors voted in favor of the center and in fact, the vote was ten to three. Only three councillors voted um, against it, and this is supposedly, you know, the most progressive um, council that we've ever had. So, anyways, actually, one of the one of the councillors who voted um, against it is Michael Jans, um, and you know, this is uh, a councillor who is regularly critical of police and. Um, Actually, there was this thing where, uh, basically, okay, so you know, we always keep saying that we're uh, known critics of the police. Basically, how this came about was, okay, was it the police? Uh, was it the police association going after your, <coughs> going after Michael?
0: It was. It was. It was. Um, yeah, it was the police union. Um, oh, the, the, the police union. association or this is a question I guess is there a difference? I think the EPA is the police association that was going against him and I think that's one and the same with the union they just, they just don't call themselves a union but they're the same thing but it was Michael Elliot um who was going after Jans specifically and who named us in the report among with among a few other people as well. yeah, yeah okay
1: but there was basically some kind of screenshot where they were like, Criticizing Jan's for interacting with known critics of the police, and saying that like no no one on council should be able to interact with critics of the police. And the screenshot was like Michael Jan's retweeting, uh, oh, yeah. retweeting us <laughs> from I well I think from that the last uh, well actually two budget increases ago in December when they gave them um, when they gave the police uh, an extra uh, million dollars. Um, so. Anyways, yeah, Omar, um, you had a chance to talk with Michael um, just yesterday, and uh, yeah, what can we expect from this uh, interview here?
0: Yeah, so I've been in, in, in contact with Michael probably since the beginning of this year, maybe a little bit before that, when right. council was talking about police funding late last year. And, you know, we've been talking, um, because he's a pretty big critic of police, He's definitely been on the forefront of really saying things publicly in the position that he's in that not many people are saying and obviously paying the price given the fact that he's been the subject of, you know, a lot of official complaints. Um, So I was really hoping to, I guess, have, I guess, somewhat of a like-minded conversation with Michael, but also I think really... um, explore his position as a counselor and how that fits within the current dynamic that we have where things are either regressing into um, a negative direction when it comes to policing and safety or there definitely is kind of I guess a guarding of the status quo and making sure we're like doubling down on what's currently going on. So here's the interview with Michael. We'll uh, see you on the other side. Yeah, for listeners who may not know who you are, Michael, do you want to introduce yourself and the kind of work that you do?
2: Sure. My name is Michael Jans. Uh, I am the city councillor for Ward Papasteo in the city of Edmonton. That's the area around the U of A and Southgate Mall and everything else uh, north of 34th Avenue. Okay.
0: And the police have recently gotten $12 million um, to my deep uh, disappointment. Do you want to explain maybe what happened? How was this proposed and how is it steamrolled through council?
2: Sure. Um, I think it's important to go back a couple of steps maybe to begin. And there's been a number of challenges in Edmonton over the last uh, number of years and across Canada about this broader question around how do we have a safe community for everybody. Uh, Edmonton pulled together this safer for all report, which I think is a very effective blueprint about uh, looking at police cost, police conduct, um, police tasking. Like, what are the things that we need police to be doing? What are things that police should not be doing? So it's um, all of this, this blueprint was pretty well handed to our council. And uh, I was pleased that when we were first elected, we made the decision to reduce the proposed police funding increase by $10 million. But unfortunately, um, this month, it looks like that uh, decision was effectively reversed and greater funds will be going back to, to uh, the Edmonton Police Service. And uh, I think it's important to, you know, clarify right off the top that, the Edmonton City Council does not have any jurisdiction to direct the police. Like if the chief of police wanted, he could have a hundred officers in Chinatown immediately. He just has to snap his fingers, put out the radio call, they will go. What city council can't direct police downtown. City Council has no purview over directing police. Now what we do have purview over is budget, and it's unfortunate that in this environment, whenever we ask for something, whether it's dealing with the convoy, whether it's dealing with bicycle theft, whether it's dealing with um, officer conduct or technology or anything else, it always seems to be paired with a budget ask. It's it's kind of the worst stereotype conservatives throw out about government about always asking for more money. It's never possible to to do less. So here. Uh, here we are, there's been, uh, you know, a tragic murder of, uh, two individuals in, in Chinatown and, and, uh, uh, within, um, you know, a, a, unfortunately we haven't even had a chance to get to the bottom of the responsibility chart here in terms of the RCMP, the Edmonton Police Service and others. Uh, but council made the decision to go ahead and vote to f- fund this, uh, they're calling it the healthy streets operation center for Chinatown. And, uh, that, uh, um, funding will come from from partially from the uh, the funds that were held back from the EPS to go towards anti racism initiatives and and fulfilling the safer for all blueprint.
0: You mentioned how every ask so you you know council can't direct police only the chief can. Um, the police decide how they want to do things, but council still has all these asks, you know, the convoy Chinatown, all these different things. But you mentioned directly how this is always coming with a price tag. Why does council not just say no? Why is there a seemingly, um, you know, a hundred percent success rate when it comes to the police asking for, for more money and getting it when all you're asking them to do is basically do their jobs that they're already very well funded to do.
2: Um, so I think this goes back to a a uh, um, across North America over the last century. There's been a very f- effective manufacture of uh, a narrative that the police keep us safe, when we know that all evidence to the contrary is, is that actually it's protective factor, factions. Uh, sorry. There's been this manufactured narrative across North America that uh, the police are the ones that keep us safe. But we know that if, if you look at criminal justice studies, et cetera, it's, it's the police respond to crime. It's the protective factors like um, early childhood education, sports programs for youth, elimination of poverty, elimination of hunger, elimination of homelessness. These are the things that um, actually keep people safe. We know that investments in the social safety net and preventing crime um, pay off far greater dividends than a reactive investment after the fact. And we've seen that crime in Edmonton has actually gone down 17% for the last three years and crime across Canada is going down. So it's, it's important to remember that, um, you know, despite uh, attempts to portray danger in the news and in the media and all these other places, accordingly um, Canada is, is getting safer. And um, we, uh, you know, if we want to be even safer, even more if if we if we want to be even more safe uh we need, to, uh, we need to continue to invest in these pieces. So the, the part that was frustrating for me about the Chinatown debate was that we could have 100 more police officers in Chinatown tomorrow if the chief wanted to position them. He could send them there. He could take resources from other areas, uh, but they decided not to. They decided that this had to be additional resources. This had to be um, new, new money, and, and I don't believe that that was properly interrogated by council. If the chief was unwilling to move resources to Chinatown, then that's a different conversation that we need to be having.
0: And so what you laid out there, I think it makes a lot of sense empirically. You know, I feel like if you explain to anyone that childhood poverty, sports programming, you know, building a sense of purpose and community prevents uh, crime from increasing, um, you know, should lead to a decrease in police resources, that seems like a very, you know, tried and true argument. But again, I kind of return to what we were talking about a little bit before. Um, why in this specific context, isn't it working on council? And I'll maybe lay it out a little bit um, differently too, where we have this progressive council or so-called progressive council where a lot of counselors um talk the talk about um, you know funding community or you know putting police funding into check we have a lot of counselors that are very pro um, you know progressive urban planning thinking about how we're using space um, accessibility a lot of these different things Um, but not necessarily all of them are walking the walk when we look at the voting patterns that are happening. Um, So given what you were mentioning before, how it seems like this is pretty clear and on the table, not to say that you need a clear argument or you need to make sense for, you know, systems to change or people to um, get to where they probably should be, but um, why this stark divide? Why do we have all the facts on the table but, you know, so-called progressive council, at least in A somewhat majority is still dragging their feet or, you know, actively funding police or reversing these decisions that would have been, you know, seen in a progressive light as soon as um, the police are actively complicit in um, these murders in Chinatown or this supposed escalation in crime.
2: It's a really good question and one I've wrestled a lot with. And one challenge, I think, is that um, many of the social movements who are very active in terms of calling for police reform or uh, retasking the police to other, other areas or investing in community or the whole, uh, you know, whether it's the defund of the police protests or some of the other uh, anti-racism groups or groups pushing for Indigenous uh, rights, the, the, many of these groups... Um, Uh, are stretched, are over capacity, are facing challenges and absent that strong accountability from community and strong accountability from social movements, um, council is left with the police lobby. And the police lobby is is very loud. They have a lot of money. They have expensive consultants. They have high priced political operatives. They they have the ability to really um, manufacture and construct a narrative around this whole question of safety. This question of Chinatown. We got letters from you know powerful development interests, powerful land interests, landlords, downtown business groups, others, all asking for more police downtown and Chinatown. But you know they never really. Interrogated the question, well, why don't we have police there now? Who made these decisions? Where does that accountability lie? And really, council is being blamed for it. But we know the problems of Chinatown—the two two thousand seven hundred or so Edmontonians who are sleeping on the sleeping without shelter right now, or 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 are, uh, on on the street. We know that's because of provincial government cutbacks. We know that's because of federal government cutbacks in the '90s, because of housing and absence to provide housing, shelter, support for. All these hum- all these neighbors, um, that's what got us into this mess, but the the levels of government accountable. the province and the feds are not taking responsibility and then leaving it to the city who we're left with a choice. Do we spend the money on um, on enforcement? Do we spend the money on housing? Do we spend the money on free footy for kids? Do we spend the money on one additional squad car? And so I've been trying to push, like, Council was very supportive when I made the motion of um, adding 10, 10 additional million dollars to our 24-7 crisis response. Right now it's on a shoestring budget. It's only $2 million and only a few vans, but I wanted to scale that up five times um, because it's those sorts of services that actually uh, take the burden off police. Um, I, I think if we're talking about having police respond to the right crime, the if we want to make sure when it comes to community, sorry, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> if we want to, if we want to ensure that we have the right service at the right time at the right place, responding to um, crime, preventing crime, helping make sure we all feel safe, we need to make sure that um, we're adequately investing in in these protective factors that that help our whole city. Mm-hmm. Um, can I can I jump in? So I sort of <coughs> went, yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess when it comes to police, like I. It's funny because I, I uh, the mildest criticism for me has some people calling me, you know, anti-police or, or you know, I'm uh, I don't like the police or something like that, which is absurd because I have friends and family who are police. Like I understand the need for police. I'm I've called the police. I'm not like I'm 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 not a, a uh, um, idealist in these scenarios. I I, I um. I, I'm looking at this just from a very practical lens that the largest item of our city budget is the police service. And unless you want infinite tax increases, you need to be able to answer the question of how do we keep people safe in a financially sustainable way. I also want um, to see bad police held accountable through conduct reform. I don't think anybody disagrees with this. I don't think the commission disagrees with this. I don't think Chief McPhee disagrees with this, that we need rigorous police conduct reform in Alberta and ACERT that owns a piece of this and the provincial government owns a piece of this. The third is this question around detasking. I want to make sure that the police are showing up to the calls that only the police can do. But if there's other topics, like say traffic or other expensive calls for service that we can do through a civilian wing, even better. That's what happens right now in Fort Saskatchewan. You'll get pulled over by a bylaw officer, not an armed uniformed police officer with a badge and a gun. Um, and finally, governance. I want to make sure that we don't have police investigating police when police are uh, get into trouble. I want to make sure that we have rigorous civilian oversight of police services, and I want to make sure that there's, there's whistleblower protection and security built in so that if police do see problems, they can say problem. And right now, we've seen from across the United States, across Canada, when you fail to have these sorts of safeguards in place... That's where you get major problems. So this is not a radical agenda. I think this is an agenda shared by 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 many. But the fact that it 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 is perceived by some powerful police interests, be it the be it the unions, be it others, as a threat to their power, a threat to their their privilege, um, that has led to an equally animated response against um, against me, against our council, against others who, who 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 dare to question. Can we do better? And we can certainly do better.
0: On that point, I think I want to talk a little bit about this kind of idea. I think what you're speaking on is, you know, directed towards optics and how things look or how people perceive certain messages um, coming from certain people. And I definitely agree. You've been painted as radical, mostly by people who have every reason to do so, like um, the uh, you know uh, head of the police union and things like that. I think. What I've really come to understand from the position I'm in is that whether you're saying "fuck the police" or whether you're saying we need practical solutions to, you know, decrease the financial situation and make it more sustainable with the police as our highest budget item, I really think the reaction is going to be similar, if not exactly the same, yeah. um, given the simple fact that you know the the power dynamics here give it all towards um, people who, who love the police or who, who really want to reinforce the status quo. So, you know, re- they really get to decide, you know, where you stand or, you know, how your position is, you know, seen or, you know, how they should label you or, you know, call you or, you know, where you should fit within this dynamic. So a lot of it is also very dishonest, too, because I feel like um, it's, it's a one way street. You know, I don't get to call the police radicals when they kick in an indigenous teenager's head and send him into a coma in the hospital and the guy who does it is still working in a desk and, you know, our tax dollars are paying for it. If I call that radical, I don't know if a lot of people are going to care or, you know, I might even get painted as, you know, some kind of, you know, Yahoo. Or if that's, you know, something that should lead to larger systemic change, ah, well, hold the brakes, you know, so... I feel like that's a, the problematic kind of thing. One thing I want to get back to is I guess this idea that council is being heavily influenced by the police lobby. And because the um, momentum of black lives matter or other um, you know, police critical voices hasn't been applying pressure on council the same way it has um, things haven't been going the way, you know, People who want things to change want them to go. One thing I want to ask is, is this kind of um, situation um, desirable or even fit within any of the values that we'd want within um, the system that we currently have? Because I personally find it very troubling that in order for us to have um, a sustainable community, a community built on things that aren't punitive violence, that aren't, you know, surveillance-based, we have to mobilize in this, like, you know, serious way and and really push these seemingly neutral counselors, or at least, you know, on the surface, to kind of, I guess, steer in our direction, or else, you know, some other very, very well-funded group and very well-connected group is going to steer things in the direction of the status quo or in, you know, a direction of, Um, Yeah, more police, more institutional power. So given this situation or given this, I think, problematic um, dynamic, um, why are we here and how do we get out of it? How do we escape this um, situation?
2: Yeah, it's 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 a it's a a great analysis. And and I think it's important to realize, like, you can't stay neutral on a moving train like we are. The train is moving towards more police and historic police spending in edmonton the next four-year budget this is where the train is moving and if people want to stop that train if people want to hop hop on and help pull the e-brake we need powerful social movements to come in and put pressure on council yes we had twenty thousand people at the legislature um for the uh uh it was two years ago um but you know politicians have the memory of goldfish we think in 15 second news cycles we think about what's going to be the headline tomorrow we need constant sustained pressure from community groups and that's a really hard ask that's many people who have experienced trauma many people who who don't have the same political capital many of whom are uh, experiencing the experiencing the brunt of 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 hardship of 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 the pandemic of, of everything and now asking them to come in and and advocate. Well, you know, unfortunately, like power surrenders nothing without a demand. It never has. It never will. And unless we can help mobilize um, groups who who want to see change, who want to see a more just, more efficient, more effective, safer for everyone, um, unless we can do that, the, the loud, dominant, powerful voices, bankrolled, of course, by the tax dollar, you know, you get the tax money in, you use it to hire Comms people, you use it to hire consultants. You use it to justify the expenditure. You go back to the taxpayer and ask for more money to respond to the consultants. That you see the you see the cycle how you're caught in it, and it's just like the military industrial complex in the United States, or 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 many of these these other examples of uh, um, manufacturing consent. So it's tough. We need strong social movements. We need people who are your listeners to get involved, to call their counsellors, to talk to people, to to make sure their voice is heard, to join with other like-minded folks through organizations, through churches, through community groups. We've seen this, that this is shifting the tide in the United States. We've seen this in the bail reform movement. We've seen this in cap- the anti-capital punishment movements. And we've seen what happens when we fail, when we cede the ground to the right in the um, reproductive health conversation.
0: So where do you fit within this dynamic of um, community um, engaging or pushing or informing council? And this is something that I think is is good to pivot on or, or move on towards is, I guess, why did you choose to do the work that you do as a counselor and use the, your skills and your time to invest in this system um, that we've seen time and time again is uh, disappointing for community, doesn't really meet the requests or it does in a very small way and then backs up like five feet Um, why did you choose to put yourself in the position to work in this kind of system instead of maybe doing some of the other things that we talked about of applying the pressure from the community or, um, working through other means? Um, I guess we can start there and then I'd love to follow up on, on other things, um, based on your answer. Yeah.
2: Um, so I believe in my, my theory of change operates around a inside outside strategy that, um, you need people on the inside, such as city councilors, such as police commissioners, such as board members, but you need people on the outside as well too. And it's the job of the, in, the people on the inside to educate, inform, share information, share opportunity with the outside. And it's the job of the outside to hold the inside accountable. It's the job of the, mo- the, the, movements to do so. I really recommend to your listeners, there's a, um, uh, PBS did a series in about, uh, Philadelphia and this district attorney, who is this crown, uh, this uh, public defender lawyer, who was elected on a police reform agenda, and he worked with Black Lives Matter and a number of different groups um, to to get elected. And 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 it's his, it's it's the story. It's a documentary of his challenges that he faces in the role as the first, um, you know, reformer uh, district attorney, and and the challenges that you face in 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 government, and uh, um, his quarrels with the police union, and all the other counter venture forces that were trying to stop him in his quest. So for me, I see my role as um, a liaison where I was supported by community. I was backed by community. I was, I've was, i worked with many of these communities going back to the school resource officer debate. Um, but fundamentally, I mean, it's it's not only the right thing to do from a moral, philosophical, spiritual level to have, to have greater police oversight and accountability and safety for everyone, but it's also, you know, Edmonton taxpayers need to realize that the largest item in their budget, the largest item of their property taxes, almost a quarter of their property taxes, goes towards the police. So when we talk about fiscal austerity, when we talk about taxes and affordability and all these other pieces, people need to know that almost a quarter of their budget is going towards the police service. So would it not make sense that at least a quarter of the time of our councillors was spent scrutinizing, asking questions about, um, looking at the expenditures, finding ways to work with partners, finding ways to do things more efficiently, effectively, sustainably, like... Really, the people who should be leading the charge towards police reform are fiscal conservatives.
0: Yeah, I will. There there might be some, some reasons why, you know, other things in their ideology that would lead them to supporting the police, even if it is this, like, unsustainable money pit. Because, you know, yeah, the police are very important in protecting... Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But... um yeah, it's I I that's that's why I really I have a hard time with like um, I guess yeah like liberalism because I I think it's like yeah I in a in a perfect world ideally um, these things would would work out the way they do but yeah people people believe things that they won't always you know be upfront with or honest about um, especially the violence part and like you know really protecting um, what they have so looking forward, I guess, um, you just got elected to council. It hasn't been, um, a crazy long time. You have, I'd say about like three years, um, to continue the work that you do. Um, yeah. What do you, what are you looking forward to, um, in the next couple of years? What do you hope to accomplish with the council and where do you see this issue of policing going when it comes to funding?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, i i was very clear when i ran as were many of the councillors that you know we want to see the agenda of the safer for all report realized that we want to see a city that is anti-racist a city that um is equitable a city that provides opportunity and and creates a welcoming space for everyone and uh um, police reform is absolutely part of that conversation it's not the only part of the conversation but we know like um The last five years before I came to uh, city council, I worked at Big Brothers Big Sisters. And we know that investing in youth, especially young men, and especially in the protective factors that uh, reduce crime, that keep people safe, that offer dignity and a place of belonging and a a chance for opportunity, these are the real ways that you eliminate crime in your community. These are the real ways that you do make people feel safe and give everyone dignity. The fact that there's 52,000, sorry. The fact that there is 52,000 children in poverty in Edmonton is uh, uh, absolutely unconscionable. And, and the fact that we can't do what we can to give them um, access to, to opportunity just like you or I is, is, is a, a major issue going forward. And so this, this we cannot have a prosperous, vibrant, um, resilient Edmonton into the future unless we fix some of these pieces affecting the most vulnerable among us.
0: And so for for listeners who want to um, keep engaging with you or um, I guess take away anything, do you have any any recommendations or things that I guess people can yeah, walk away from this conversation um, from and, and maybe implement or, or, or read up on?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The uh, couple of things. So first of all, if you go to michaeljans.ca slash safer for all, I have some more information there about my work around police reform. Secondly, I'd invite you to um, a former mayor of Toronto wrote a book called Crisis in Canada's Policing. Uh, it was post, post the murder of George Floyd. So it's, it's very current. And it's uh, a very, very good book. And I would suggest it goes into those questions about what do police actually do? What do we pay them to do? Why is Canada's policing system broken? Why is the discipline system broken? And it has uh, an analysis from 40 years in the field that um, John Sewell has brought forward. I highly recommend this book. There's five copies available at Edmonton Public Library. You can watch a video where he introduces the book online uh, at at YouTube. Highly recommend that book. There's also um, a writer out of the United States who, um, who I can't pronounce his name, Alex. Give me one sec. Yeah. Well, I can't find it now. Um, if, if his name is uh, uh, Alex Karakastansis. So, yeah. Um, so there's also a writer out of the United States called a- Alex Karakastansis, which I hope I didn't butcher his name, but he writes a, um, a, a newsletter at equalityalec.substack.com. Dot dot and um, Alec has been um, phenomenal in terms of raising the the level of debate around um, police accountability and looking into the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves about police, the stories that the police tell themselves about us. He writes a newsletter called Alex's Copaganda Newsletter where he goes into many of the the, the big examples of um, uh, how the police are... are um, manufacturing uh, uh, different narratives and 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 different challenges around the budget and and how we can really work together to invest in the protective factors that keep everyone safe. So I really recommend those resources. I think it's important to join with local organizers who are trying to do work in this field, whether it be the John Humphrey Center for Peace and Human Rights, whether it be Black Lives Matter, whether it be Black Women United. There's so many different groups that are, are trying to move ahead here, frontline harm reduction groups. Uh, there's a lot happening in Edmonton. What we need is just to get involved, even, you know, even an hour a week, even signing up to these newsletters, even taking a moment to write your counselor, write your MLA. Um, this is, this is how this work gets done. And I mean, when people show up, results happen. Like we saw that during the school resource officer debate at Edmonton public schools. We saw that during the uh, the post George Floyd um, protests in Edmonton where the safer for all report um, came to fruition. But this, um, you know we're we're pushing back against a a narrative of, of of white supremacy and and the worst parts of capitalism and the worst parts of of oppression throughout um not just Edmonton but North America and that's challenging and it takes it takes constant vigilance vigilance on our part to to push for uh, um for human rights and reform you know we've seen as soon as as soon as we finally achieved public health care there were voices out there trying to privatize it and break it up and destroy it same thing in all of this in in all of this other work so it's important to um, get get angry get allies get active get involved
0: that's a great place to end but I also want to maybe end on a lighter note um, how did you celebrate the death of our um, famed non-existent gondola <laughs>
2: um I uh I what did I do um on it honestly I think I I I was I remember when the vote passed I was sitting in council chamber and I just felt a huge sigh of relief that like oh good we're not gonna have to we're not gonna have to pick up the pieces of this project I was I was really worried about um uh what was what was gonna happen there so uh yeah I think I think I was just um exhaustion and then you know you kind of collapse across the finish line Yeah.
0: Anything else you want to add or anything we didn't touch on that you think listeners should know?
2: Um, Let's see. So we talked about resources. Uh, Of course, I should mention the Progress Alberta podcast. They've done some phenomenal work here. Yeah, I do do want to say like the role of of critical media. There's basically um, Taproot Edmonton and uh, Progress Alberta have been the two who have been the most Um, offered the most oversight in terms of the police service. There have been individual journalists like Janice Johnson at CBC and others, uh, um, uh, Johnny Wakefield at Post Media. There's some individual journalists who have been outstanding on the crime beat um, and uh, others I'm I'm sure I can't mention now. But but in general, um, what's I think sort of missing is part of this broader cohesive coalition of people who are going to work together to... um, offer a heightened level of, of scrutiny to policing in Alberta. And it's funny because, you know, we're in this provincial conversation about should we have our own police force or you know, what's the role of the RCMP? But absent from that conversation as well is this conversation about so how is anti-racism going to be integrated? How is cost cost control going to be integrated? How is like it's still um, assuming many of the same things instead of talking about, so, you know, why why do we have why do we have poverty? Why do we have some of these other, the the challenges that are leading to, you you see these like air quotes, rural crime, yeah. which we know is often a, a racist dog whistle. Yeah. So I would say, yeah. Um, I think there's, there's, there's enormous work being done already in the socials, social sector in, in Edmonton, um, Big brothers, big sisters. Others helping helping young people have hope and opportunity, and that's really where I think we need to continue to concentrate our efforts because nobody ends up in the remand center overnight, right? Like it's a long path, and it's many, many failings of our system over and over and over that end up where a young person is in a gang, and then later on, that young person is on the street, or that young person is is um, involved in in uh, you know a violent offense. Like there's there's so many ways that like. You just look at the records. You look at the court. You look at the court. You look at even the um, the the murder in Chinatown. You look at how many ways this fellow was failed, um, not to certainly excuse his his horrendous actions, but how many ways could this have been prevented by us doing our job as civil society to to take care of each other?
1: Yeah, Omar, that was a really great great interview, and I think a really cool opportunity that you got to um finally talk with him uh yeah what are some of your i guess yeah what were some of your thoughts immediately after the interview do you feel like it do you feel like it went the way that you wanted it to do you feel you got to ask the things that you wanted to
0: um i think i got to ask the things i wanted to i don't think it went the way I thought it would or the way I necessarily wanted to. I think one thing that definitely stood out to me the second time I listened to it was how focused the interview was on optics and how, like, I remember a comment that was made of, like, how it maybe doesn't fit within, you know, the kind of audience that might be listening to the show, and how it might be very prepared in a lot of the ways that the answers were communicated. So I was really trying to, you know, ask my questions in ways that would open up the conversation or that would lead to, um, you know, things that fall outside of um, what what can be offered by a prepared statement or by um, I guess, like, a political plan, basically. Um, So I'd say that was, like, pretty disappointing in some ways to kind of almost have these, like, guardrails to Mm -hmm. what was going to be said or how it was going to be said because um, not only can that be, like, stifling, but I think also it it provides so many limitations to what we can clearly see as, like, very complex problems that need um, better solutions beyond, I think... You know, political. Um, I guess like speeches, essentially. Mm. Um, yeah, that's yeah, kind of how weird, I felt.
1: Yeah, it's it's weird. I think as someone who, you know, is critical of the police, I guess you would assume that um, he takes a very like community centered approach to his politics and maybe tries to like talk to people in a more authentic level. Um, I think. I thought it was weird like there were definitely a few times in the interview where he kind of like maybe thought he was like you know going uh, a little bit off his prepared points and then had to kind of like take a breath and Start over in order to say like the exact word that he wanted to say Mm. and I feel like things like that you often maybe hear that from like politicians um, and it's moments like that that really make you feel like, okay, now they're not really talking to me. Now they're just trying to, trying to, uh, stick with their pre-written, um, yeah, pre-written speech, like you said. And, I, this is, like, really weird, especially knowing that he's talking on our podcast. Um, I mean, you know, anyone listening to this, you can let us know if you thought... The way that Michael Jans was laying things out really spoke to you, but I mean, uh, I would think that most people listening to our podcast um, are already coming here with a critical eye for the police and um, wanting to see some kind of meaningful change happen um, at uh, at the level that someone like Michael Jans has influence um, in terms of. Um, defunding the police or uh, certainly not funding things that are going to give 10 more million dollars to the police in a year that we've already given 20 million dollars to the police so I don't know why he was so invested in trying to paint himself as someone who you know isn't radical or um, isn't like ideologically opposed to the police and is actually Friendly to the police and has people in his family who are police. Um, yeah, that seems that seems really confusing because I don't I don't know who he really thought he was talking to there.
0: Yeah, I I I, I don't get it. And like maybe you, I'll get the chance to ask her after this comes out. We'll we'll kind of have follow ups on it. But uh, uh, this kind of part that also has me thinking is I guess. The theory of change and, and thinking around politics through, I guess, social movements and insiders and the interplay between those two groups. And I think that vision of politics can be pretty toxic and and I guess stifling for um, for for people who really need access to the change that, you know, these supposed insiders have. Because, yeah, it, it makes it so that there's no systemic critique. It just places it so that there are, yeah, insiders who can, you know, facilitate and help and educate, um, which already has, I think, really negative connotations, you know. Supposing that people on the ground don't already know what they need, don't already know what they want instinctively, which I do think is true, but then it also makes it so that there's an onus on people in social movements to basically push these supposedly neutral counselors and go against... What was said to be, you know, well-funded lobbyists or, you know, people in positions to own businesses and those kind of things. And within that context, it's really setting up for a lot of fatalism, for a lot of essential, you know, built-in failure because the community doesn't have the, the, the resources to play in a game like that. Which is why the game needs to be thrown out the window altogether. At least, you know, that's how I kind of view it um yeah i thought
1: it yeah i thought it was really weird how i guess also as someone who's often kind of painted as this kind of like rogue politician um i was definitely surprised by how uh i guess i would say i wouldn't call it defensive of the system uh, defensive of the system necessarily but he certainly was trying to he he was certainly avoiding any kind of critique of the system, um, like his whole yeah his whole inside outside theory of change, which funny enough is actually what we predicted his answer would be to that question. It's all about uh, it's all about relieving him as a member of the system or the system as a whole of any kind of responsibility to make things better for people, and it's all and. His theory kind of just puts all the responsibility on people to have to be influential enough uh, on the system to convince those insiders I guess to do something for the people and you know if you uh, weren't loud enough with what you wanted um, then Uh, You're just going to be beaten out by the interests of those who have money and marketing teams and lobbying teams and uh, existing relationships with those in power um, who are are just they're just going to be more influential on council. And that's no fault of council. Um, They're going to be influenced by who they're going to be influenced by. It's it's your fault as uh, a member of the community for not being not being loud enough. So, you know, if you didn't get what you wanted, um, that's on you. I guess another example of, you know, trying to pass the buck is uh, there's a lot of talk here about, you know, we don't have enough funding from the province to do anything that would get us out of a situation where we need to keep giving uh, police more money. And in this way, Jan's is almost identical to... Well, we hear all the time from uh, Mayor Sohee, where it's just, well, we didn't get enough money from the province, so, uh, well, okay, this is actually a funny uh, contradiction here, is when it comes to uh, Chinatown, Healthy Streets, um, whatever dumb name they gave it, Center, their stance is that we aren't getting money from the province, so we have to fund this ourselves. And here's a quote from Sohi. He says, if the province does not step up, this $15 million will be coming through property taxes. Um, and then when it comes to housing or health care or anything that Sohi himself uh, pins as the root causes of the issues here, those are are just off the table for discussion because there's no funding from the province. So, yeah, that's a really dumb kind of contradiction here. When it comes to police, we're going to make a plan, we're going to commit to it, and we're going to fund it no matter what. Um, We are going to ask the province for funding, but if they don't give us funding, um, we're just going to fund it ourselves. And what choice do we have because we... uh, don't have these things housing and health care um, taken care of to the point where we can defund the police oh okay well why don't we fund uh, housing and health care why don't we put more support uh, into that as a city oh we can't do that because we need funding from the province uh, oh well why don't we go ahead and plan so- no no we don't have funding from the province we don't have funding from the province so we can't so we can't do that and then let's see I mean yeah, here's the quote from Sohi here: Health and housing are provincial areas of responsibility, and right now our city is suffering from significant lack of adequate supportive housing, wraparound services, addictions treatment support from support for those released from correctional facilities and mental health services. Great, we totally agree with you. That's what our city needs. So let's put the money into those things and uh, take a gamble on those things rather than taking a gamble on just giving the police more and more money.
0: This is what I wish we had a conversation about. And this is a level of introspection I wish was coming from, you know, actual counselors like like Michael Jans. I wish that the steps were taken to ask these serious questions about what's going on internally. Instead, I feel like it's a lot of, you know, I guess, theories and ideas that are carried with, you know, great weight. And then, I guess, kind of like brought to the table for the community to say, you know, look, here's what I believe. And, you know, here's how it fits in within, um, I guess, this idealized um, version. But I think what we've been talking about and in, in these quotes from Sohi, the reality that we see certain decisions being made and certain decision- decisions decisions consistently being rejected, that's where the conversation is. And unfortunately, that's not where we were able to get to. I hope that there are more opportunities. And it doesn't have to be with a politician. I hope that even within the platform that we have, Nicholas, or if it's someone else that we bring onto the show, we can just like critically start to... Um get to the bottom of what's going on and how we can see council, how we can see um, political institutions and all the different parts that feed into them for what they are. Um, and it's, it's, it, it was very difficult to do that, having an actual conversation with Michael Jans, a politician who's in the center of it, which for me was definitely disappointing. I think in one of our episodes earlier this year, I think it was Tom
1: who was uh, Tom, Tom Engel, um, who was just talking about a lack of political will. And Mm, um, I know, you know, Omar, you and I were talking a little bit about this earlier this week about it's like, why? uh, Like, why would so many counselors so clearly make statements that, you know, acknowledge the issues with giving police more money and uh, acknowledge that this doesn't help the problems and acknowledge that this it doesn't even help the community and then still turn around and vote for giving more money to police. And one of the things that we mentioned is just this idea of, um, or I guess this question of like, why does anyone get into politics? And, you know, we're very cynical about politics at this point, probably as all people should be. Um, But, uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of it is just that people who get into politics are almost at a point where you want to tap out from doing any kind of work. So inherently, the will to kind of change things isn't there. But it's not really as simple as that. You don't just want to kick back and do nothing you also want to tell yourself that you're noble that you're doing something good you hear politicians all the time saying you know oh now the work begins after they get elected or you know they'll say things like oh yeah we're just you know we're doing the work or we're putting a lot of hard hard work into this um when yeah in reality They're really just there to go to the ribbon cuttings, to uh, be a part of the decorum of the council meetings, to have their name on plaques, and, uh, and to also be praised or upheld as someone who's really shaping the city or doing something good for the community. So from that perspective, it's really important for counselors to um, acknowledge that they recognize the reality of a situation or they recognize the uh, different factors at play and um, are aligned with the community and they see the community, um, yet they just go and and vote in favor of the the status quo and giving more money to police um, like they always have. And um, there was was one quote that we pulled from the council meeting from uh, Sarah Hamilton, who did vote in favor of the motion. Um, And uh, she opened her statement here saying, I really appreciate the robust discussion that has happened today and at previous meetings and the thoughtful approach that I think each of my colleagues is bringing to this even if the summary isn't that we all agree. So I think there you have it. That's kind of just the epitome of politics or liberal politics in the most progressive council that we've ever had. It's not about making things better for people. It's not about actually making progressive decisions or moving things in any kind of direction. It's just about we have robust discussion And even if we don't all agree, we were all thoughtful about it. And that's the takeaway at the end of the day, is that we're all coming together to have robust discussion. Us counselors are thoughtful and uh, thought leaders. And even if we don't agree, we're having robust discussion.
0: No, that that really gets to such a really good analysis, Nicholas, and I feel like it's it's that you know, it's the the thoughtfulness that can come from someone who is arguing for uh, significantly slashing the police budget can be the same kind of thoughtfulness that comes from someone who wants um, the police to get as much money as they'd ever. You know, want and those thoughtfulness, you know, debates can exist in the same arena, and we can we can all come to the same conclusion, which almost always, like I said, yeah, reinforces the status quo, keeps the institutions the way they were, um, and ultimately, I think the the real consequence is, is is neglecting and and disappointing. Um, Working people on the ground who who are asking for the change that they deserve. So it's yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. I guess we weren't excited about politics before, you know, said openly that we were cynical. And I think I'm basically at the same place, maybe a little bit more cynical. But um, yeah,
1: well, I don't know. I mean, I think it was this was a good, you know, if there was anyone in council that you know we thought would be a good you know good opening or that we could be more um, aligned with or um, anything like that I think it was going to be Michael Jans so I think this was just like a good I don't don't know a good test of that um, that that question almost you know like what what kind of change can you ever really expect to happen like within the system and um, I don't know I mean it's not something we're going to ignore I think we'll you know keep trying to engage with with him and with with other um politicians and i think that's what forms uh that that skepticism is is what forms you know a healthier um healthier system you know you don't no one wants to just be giving those in power a free pass on furthering the entrenched um inequalities uh in our you know society um omar he uh this is also another i think just trope of like politicians is like asking people to call their representatives so anyways Uh, i wanted to ask you what you um
0: what you thought about that it's 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 um it 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 can feel almost insulting at times because i just i i think that the the problems that people are facing are so um, in your face um, at this point, at least it feels like especially for the most vulnerable. So you know, this constant solicitation for um, feedback or consultation or trying to understand the issue it's 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 um, yeah, it can it can be insulting. I feel like we we've moved beyond that, and and that can serve a very um, specific purpose, but its purpose is purely negative for anyone on the ground faced with um, living and you know trying to etch out some kind of existence or thriving in the system. Um, the purpose it serves is only to you know obfuscate or to delay or to um i guess yeah pretend like there's some kind of unknown like we don't know what's going wrong or you know we don't understand so you know pushing people to call their their counselor to have their voices heard or, or to do that it's Yeah, if anything, it does more so sound like, yeah, more like a rehearsed um, speech or rehearsed part of something that someone has to say in order to, yeah, check off a requirement or um, something that they usually do. Because in practice, I just can't see how it's in any way useful or meaningful Mm. maybe if counselors were able to solve you know individual personal problems or if they had that kind of power to you know wave a wand and um make sure that you know these problems that people are facing that are hyper specific in their lives were were solved but unless it's something that's mundane or you know directly related to some kind of city jurisdiction like i don't know like garbage removal or something like that i really don't see how it applies in any meaningful way
1: yeah, I don't know. I guess I would say it's like on you know, this issue and many others, you know, people have made their points clear at many op- at you know, many many opportunities showing up to council meetings, showing up to police commission meetings, um on on social media obviously and Saying at this point that people need to call their politicians is um, really insulting because what it implies is that we haven't heard you yet. Um, and it still is up to you to make yourself yet more heard by us. And that's on you. That's on you as people. It's not on us as the people with the power to make the change. Um, you just have to be louder. And when you're louder, and when you've become louder at the further expense of your time and energy and um, uh, and uh, resources, um, we're just gonna say you need to be louder. Even um, it'll it'll never be enough. Uh, that'll always be our our uh, reason for not doing
0: anything. <sighs> yeah no that's exactly
1: what it is okay well anyways that's probably a good place to good place to wrap it up um i think you know we've done a lot of uh episodes that are a little more um a little more scattered i think oftentimes we come in here with with a broad topic that we want to talk about and then we end up getting distracted by some or n- not distracted, but we end up opening with and spending a lot of time on some uh, kind of like hyper local event. So I think this time, you know, we really wanted to just actually hone in on hone in on that and spend more time um, detailing what you know what's happening with
0: this uh, Chinatown Chinatown Center. Mm-hmm. And I think as the city moves into their next budget cycle um, debates, I think you can look forward to more, I guess, yeah, like event specific or more like local kind of focus coverage like this or analysis from us because, yeah, it's super important. And um, it can be very, um, I guess, maybe like depressing um, at times, but yeah, definitely still want to engage with it and definitely still want to um, understand what's going on. And we're also probably going to be recording a Cringe Corner based on a few of the topics that we were talking about on this episode. So if you want to listen to that and also support the show, you can head over to our Patreon. Um, it's patreon.com slash is this for real.